our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, did you know that an estimated 80 million Americans currently lack access to dental care as oral health is essential to the overall health and well-being of an individual? The high volume of those without access can have potentially devastating health consequences, such as increased risk of developing heart disease, respiratory disease, chronic diseases, such as diabetes and having adverse pregnancy outcomes and Oral health can also influence eating habits and sleep patterns, which in turn can adversely impact both physical and mental health. And tragically, research shows that poor oral health is more common among individuals with lower income and lower educational attainment. We have to do better. And in value-based care, just seeing that the growing number of emergency department visits uh, related to poor oral health I mean, it's showing us that there's clearly a relationship between oral health and physical health. And with this link between the availability of dental care in a community and overall population health, we need to establish a more integrated, accessible, and equitable oral health landscape in our country. And in this week's podcast, you're going to be hearing from a leader in the field of oral health who is working to reduce disparities in access to quality care. His name is Kaz Raffia. He's the Chief Health Equity Officer for the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health, and they're a leading national nonprofit focused on creating a more accessible, equitable, and integrated oral health system. At CareQuest, he leads strategic initiatives to advance access to integrated oral health care for ethnically and socially diverse communities, and he's someone that you definitely want to check out as you're leading your own transformation and the race to value. And if you like what you hear, also check out the intelligence brief that the Institute for Advancing Health Value and partnership with CareQuest released this week in conjunction with this podcast entitled Why Oral Health is Critical in a Value-Based System. You can access the link in the show notes. And before you hear from Kaz, I also wanted to thank you our loyal listeners, crusaders in the value movement for tuning in each and every week. If you want to support our podcast, please remember to subscribe to our newsletter and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. So let's now hear from Kaz Raffia, DDS, MBA, MPH, really smart dude. And he's going to be talking to you about the race to value in oral health. Kaz, welcome to the Race to Value this week. It is so amazing to have you on the show. And, you know, this is the first time that we've actually done an episode talking about this important intersection with oral health and value-based care. Thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. I love it. Well, Kaz, I thought as we started our conversation today, we could talk about this link between oral health and community health. In the United States, since oral health and physical health services are licensed and governed separately, we tend to think of them as being completely unrelated. However, there's clear evidence that a lack of oral health leads to potentially devastating health consequences, and I'm sure you know them well. I mean, you know, we we see increased risk of 
cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, inflammatory conditions, adverse pregnancy outcomes, and, and on and on. And we also see that poor oral health also adversely impacts mental health. And community oral health transformation is a real important focus at the CareQuest Institute. And your organization's developed a framework for safety net dental clinics to transform healthcare delivery through telehealth and focusing on prevention and minimally invasive care and whole person care models. And also, as I understand, you've developed something called More Care, and MORE as an acronym stands for Medical Oral Expanded Care. And it's a breakthrough collaborative model that works with communities to establish interprofessional oral health networks to integrate this person-centered oral health care model. And I just love all that work. And it's such an important alignment with the overall movement to value-based care. So, you know, could you help our listeners better understand this connection between oral health and community health? And, and how does the work that CareQuest is doing create a more accessible, equitable, and integrated oral health system to align with these uh, tenets of value-based care? Thank you so much, Eric. I, I love it. You went right for the core question and the, and the anchor around which we build our work. CareQuest Institute for Oral Health is we're a national nonprofit. We're championing, like you said, an equitable future where every person can reach their full potential through excellent health. We're a catalyst for system change, bringing forth ideas and solutions towards that end. And we seek out as what Governor Levitt calls value alliances. We collaborate with thought leaders, purchases, providers, payers, patients, and stakeholders across the oral health transformation landscape uh, to create a system that's responsive to everyone. And tying that all back is the fact that oral health is really inextricably linked to individual and community health, the overall health, well-being, and also economic security. The inability of a person to receive oral health care, dental care is a really clear threat to their overall health and unchecked dental disease has impacts, as you said, far beyond the mouth. Uh, poor oral health has been linked to chronic illnesses that have been manifested both physically and through behavioral health. We know, for example, that having 10 years of chronic periodontitis, which is gum disease, is associated with a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. And so that an uncontrolled periodontal disease could trigger and exacerbate a neuroinflammatory phenomenon seen in, in Alzheimer's. As far as respiratory health, research has shown that improving oral health among medically fragile seniors can reduce their death rates from aspiration pneumonia. Most recently, this was all over the, the news with the ventilator-associated pneumonia and that patients with VAP uh, who engaged in regular toothbrushing spent significantly less time on mechanical ventilation, be it from COVID or, or other illnesses. And of course, there's adverse birth outcomes. Uh, periodontal disease, gum disease among pregnant women is associated with preterm births, low birth weight babies, and preeclampsia, pregnancy complication that can cause organ damage, it can actually be fatal. And so to that end, one of the initiatives, one of the many initiatives that we've undertaken, as you said, is really introducing and having a conversation around value-based care and how we can drive the conversation around it. You touched on the conversation around more care. It's breakthrough series collaboration. We work with communities to establish an interprofessional oral health network to integrate person-centered oral health care and our project team focusing first on assisting medical practices. And that's where we go to. We actually engage the medical side in developing skills and adopting the processes necessary to integrate oral health services into their existing workflows. We did something similar to that when I was in Oregon as a state dental director. It was not led by CareQuest, but it was amazing. And it was an epiphany to get uh, to come out to CareQuest Institute and see that they've got the framework for this. So that medical practices would then work to implement health information technology solution, which would then enable them to electronically refer uh, those individuals to dental practices. It's an adaptable framework, so communities can make modifications based on their specific needs. And this allows for creation of a localized solution instead of prescribed one within each system. You also touched on the Community Oral Health Transformation, or CORE, also developed here in-house. It's also a separate framework that is, it engages safety net dental clinics to help them transform their delivery. And it's really based on um, actuating telehealth 
working on uh, integrating and advancing medical and dental systems and, and really educating the providers and the public as well as the payer side on minimally invasive care, non-surgical interventions, be it fluoride applications or any sort of uh, innovative non-invasive measures that are out there or minimally invasive uh, measures that are out there that would reduce costlier care. Well, Kaz, we have some major challenges to overcome, as I understand, in the oral health landscape. And one of the main ones is just the elimination of health disparities. I mean, a lot of that comes about because of the lack of access. I mean, we have 80 million people now that currently lack access to dental care in our country, you know, and traditional Medicare doesn't cover routine dental care, and many people lose their benefits upon retirement. In addition, you know, many low-income adults do not have public dental insurance, and Medicaid programs aren't required to provide these benefits to adult enrollees. So we see that dental coverage varies widely from state to state. And if you look at the disparities data in oral health, it's quite daunting when you look at how that impacts people across racial and socioeconomic lines. I mean, among working-age U.S. adults over 40% of low-income non-Hispanic Black adults have untreated tooth decay, and that's compared to 16% in the non-Hispanic white population, and you have 15% of Black non-Hispanic children that have untreated tooth decay compared to 7% in white non-Hispanic children. And from what I understand, the main barriers to accessing dental care include such things as access to coverage, as I mentioned. There's provider shortages. There's cultural barriers to oral health. And I wanted to see if you could elaborate on some of these issues that contribute to oral health disparities. And, and also, uh, what work are you doing as a leader in oral health at a national level to advance access to integrated oral health care for ethnically and socially diverse communities. I love that you brought up the disparities because really disparities in outcomes when you look at upstream drivers are in many cases among, among a myriad of causes and factors are, caused, are, are rooted among the lack of access and the drivers for that lack of access is the geographic isolation of communities in, in rural areas. Um, there's lack of um, adequate transportation, and so that folks cannot get to actually a center of care because we do know that providers uh, happen to cluster around urban areas. So that lack of transportation plays a big part. Uh, rate of poverty we know is higher in non-metro areas, again, driving uh, the disease burden to a higher level. In, um, in the rural, among the rural population and underserved communities. Some of those drivers, when we talk about lack of access, is that difficulty of providers to, to treat Medicaid patients. We know that low reimbursement rates caused a lot of dentists to not accept uh, Medicaid. Uh, we have about a 43% rate nationally of dentists accepting Medicaid and CHIP. And Medicaid rates are, are pinned to about 60% of the overall private insurance rate and 53% uh, for, for adults, for children, and 53% for adults. But really, what we need to look at is that American Academy of Medical Colleges, AMC, found that average medical school debt among medical students was about $194,000 this past year, whereas the average general student graduate debt is about $300,000. So really have to ask yourself why that clustering is occurring among the providers, which is driving disparities in outcome and access. When you, some of the numbers that you mentioned is that, is, for example, that Black adults are 68% more likely to have unmet dental need than the white adults, or those who identify as American Indian, Alaska Native were nearly three times more likely to go to ED for dental care. That, that's, just, that's just straight up lack of access. And then, of course, you have an acute provider shortage, and you, you see that two-thirds of the nation's HIPSA, health provider shortage areas, uh, happen to fall in rural areas. Um, you touched on the lack of dental insurance um, and how the dental insurance is really employment-based. And if the rural areas and underserved and economically marginalized areas of this country um, also lack in, in employment opportunities, well, then therefore, it stands a reason that the dental insurance will not be uh, provided uh, for folks in those areas. And so you see this lack of access and how multifaceted it is and how many different 
um, how many different issues drive it and actually adds to the complexity and the complexity of the issue, but also the necessity for us to uh, keep pushing our efforts into making sure we address this access issue. Among some of the work that we're doing is first of all, uh, what, one of the things that I come back to is not resting in our laurels because we've been able to find collaborators and community-based organization and, and folks who are engaged and drivers on the policy side. Medicaid adult dental benefits in Maryland just went live uh, as of January 1st. Currently, as it stands, I believe Alabama ends up being the only state that currently has no uh, shape, way, or form of Medicaid adult dental benefit. And so you can actually see the needle moving, albeit slowly. Uh, on the grant making side, we are the largest single oral health grant making organization in the US. Um, we engage community-based organizations, BIPOC-led organizations, and individuals um, who are driving this sort of work. Our health transformation, really spreading and evangelizing the work around value-based care and value-based models um, that are adaptable are, are also driving um, driving this um, towards reducing barriers to access nationally. Well, Kaz, this healthcare system that we're in, it's completely broken. And, you know, and I, I just can't help but think there's uh, some lessons to be learned as we reimagine uh, healthcare and oral health in our country. And, you know, uh, some of that can come from other countries, I think, you know, I, I don't know why we don't look outside of our, our own country sometimes for, for, for solutions. I don't know if it's hubris or just the inherent complexity of our system. But, you know, one of the reasons I got into value-based care was when I took a trip to Cuba and I got to see community-based primary care and a medical home model that was focused on communities and it scaled across the country. And I just can't help but think that there's maybe in the oral health space, some some countries that we can look to in terms of some leading, you know, innovation or improved outcomes. I'd love to just kind of, you know, engage you on that concept. I mean, could you illustrate if, if there are any uh, key learnings or programs that have been implemented in other countries that may have some applicability here in the States uh, in terms of creating this more integrated, accessible and equitable oral health landscape? I love that you brought that up. WHO just put out a large memo through their uh, Office of Non-Communicable Diseases, and Dr. Benty Mickelson actually uh, referred to oral health as a fundamental right. So you're absolutely right. A lot of our solutions don't have to be homegrown. And I, and I love the fact that you, you pointed out to our hubris, because as you know, and you're exceptionally well-informed on this, uh, a lot of the solutions we turn up our noses at when we talk about value-based models that are out there outside of the U.S. and we our automatic knee-jerk response quite often is, well, yeah, well, what about the quality of care that's being provided? What happens to the cost? Some of the example of models that are out there, I mean, first, I, I suppose first, we, if we back it up and think about what really truly value is, the, you know, the, the, the standing uh, formula, if you will, for what really we see as, as value uh, and how we define it. How do we define quality? What are the costs and cost parameters? How many folks have their hands in a cookie jar? And, and what, are the, what are the constraints within the system? And who are the stakeholders implicitly or explicitly preventing us from, from wanting to have that conversation in a frank and transparent way? So those are the obstacles. You're absolutely right. The fight still goes on. Uh, we need to make a case for it. But when you look outside and look at some of the models, you brought up Cuba as an example. Another one is Sweden, uh, where they have a national policy. They can uh, offer free dental care, I believe, up to age 18. There were some conversations to increasing it 21 at some point. They have also, additionally, beyond how their models work, uh, in their insurance and their payment system works, is that they happen to have a lower, less costlier care. And of course, the counter argument to that quite often is that the quality of the work that we put out um, in the U.S. is higher. You know, that, that can be argued as a clinician of 25 years in the U.S. I'm proud of the output of our dental schools and, and the training that our clinicians have in the U.S. But this does not preclude us to, to really uh, be open and accepting on, on different models of delivery of care. 
Dental therapists, for example, which is a mid-level provider, they've been practicing in 54 countries and including some very highly developed industrial nations, as well as developing nations have this mid-level provider. It all started years ago in New Zealand, actually. In 2021, Oregon, I'm proud to say, uh, through House Bill 2528, in collaboration actually with a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of wrangling back and forth on the number of proposed amendments on this particular House Bill, but House Bill 2528 passed uh, in 2021, and it was signing the law permitting dental therapists to practice in the state of Oregon. Now, it's a contentious issue. There's concerns that there is going to be uh, erosion of perhaps quality of care delivered. But at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is, if the quality of care, if the quality of training is there and, and the parameters are set and guided by stakeholders that includes clinicians, as meant by clinicians, I mean dentists, then it stands a reason that the delivery of care should be within the parameters and guidelines that are clinically acceptable. We, we do need to think outside the box, uh, be it on across delivery of care through our clinicians, be it through delivery of, of therapeutics through minimally invasive care that may be developed outside the US, uh, or perhaps really re-engineering how we look at the cost structure of delivery of oral health in the US. Well, Kaz, we, we definitely have to find these bright spots and find ways to replicate them and create scalability and really improve the delivery of care to make it more higher value. And I love how in your response, you you talked about how we need to even define what value even is. And that that's such a, a challenge when you talk to people in industry and they think strictly in terms of payment models and they're not really thinking about the tech enablement or the relationship-based care or the whole person orientation around care delivery. And that's such an important aspect to think about in terms of how oral health is is such an essential component of whole person care. And because we've, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we created this bifurcation between healthcare and dental care in our country. We're just not acclimated to think that way. But, you know, there's so much that's happening right now in the redesign of care delivery to clinically integrate oral health within healthcare. And, you know, there's several FQHCs and community health centers across the country that are doing this right now with their primary care medical home model. And, and I know this is top of mind for you at the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health. And I recently read how CareQuest partnered with the Center for Integration of Primary Care and Oral Health on an initiative called 100 Million Mouths, which is an initiative that's seeking to create primary care champions for equitable oral health. And I'm just thinking, Kaz, as uh, an organization that's focused on centering health equity in the voices of marginalized communities, how does building a coalition of support between primary care and dental care integration work to improve care delivery and coordination? I mean, could you provide your perspective on the need for integration and share any examples of successful models, you know, that you've seen over the years? Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate you bringing up the, the particular uh, campaign that with, with CIPOC. Going back to what we talked about and how oral health problems can actually contribute to a vast variety of other health problems. We talked about blood pressure, diabetes, we talked about Alzheimer's and pregnancy complications. And the fact that really good oral health practices and Preventative dental care uh, can actually be a positive and, and they can actually add to our gains. And, but we do know that despite the growing understanding of this relationship, we're still siloed. Dentistry is completely siloed, providing of care, be it our IT, be it our interoperability, and be it our engagement on anything beyond just a mouth has been siloed. We know that medical dental integration can help build that critical bridge between oral health and overall health. It's really approach to care, to care that integrates uh, dental medicine into primary care, into behavioral health. There was an article recently in uh, JADA, Journal of American Dental Association, among other research, that they actually found out that this integration in dental setting can actually allow for closure of medical care gaps, such as recommended routine settings. My colleagues back at Kaiser Permanente, Permanente Northwest, Permanente Dental Associates in Pacific Northwest have been engaged for a while in having A1C checks for their dental patients who are in the chair. We do know uh, that 
you know, of course, with closed systems that, uh, such as FQHCs, that is, that is fertile ground, if you will, for that sort of integrative work. But beyond that, though, you would also, this sort of integration promotes the practice of providers, uh, such as having the screening of their care, being oral cancer, vast other uh, clinical issues, or overall health clinical issues that sort of manifest them, themselves through oral conditions. We do know that closing that gap of integration can mean cost savings to the entire system. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that the foundation for value-based care? This particular campaign that you refer to, this 100 million mouths campaign, we're always, because we're always searching for ways to advance medical dental integration, and we're also centering health equity and the voices of marginal communities, we were able to partner, as you said, with SIPOC Center for Integration of primary care and oral health to fund this particular campaign where they have champions in each state who work with health professional schools and programs to integrate oral health into their primary care curricula. So really what it is, is that not just advocating for, but integrating of dental education, dental curriculum in a meaningful way in the primary care education programs. We know that this investment to help educational institutions rethink how they approach oral health as part of an overall health can, in fact, move the needle on health equity. Well, as we're looking to move this needle on health equity, I mentioned earlier how we had to really create this integration in our mind around this important nexus between healthcare and oral health and and uh, and really understand how the lack of dental care exacerbates a person's overall health and well-being. And I wanted to go deeper on this uh, alignment between oral health and healthcare by discussing the cost and utilization impacts of non-traumatic dental conditions. You know, I was looking at a report recently that the CareQuest Institute put out in 2019, and it said that there were 1.8 million hospital ED visits for non-traumatic dental conditions, otherwise known as NTDCs, and that they cost $3.4 billion to treat. And individuals without insurance are most likely to have these ET these ED visits for NTDCs, followed by those with Medicaid coverage, and then finally by those with private insurance. And it seems like there's definitely an opportunity in value-based care to curb this avoidable utilization within the ED and increase access to preventative dental services. Can you expound on the financial impact of non-traumatic dental conditions and how the trends in ED utilization for NTDCs relate to social determinants of health and other barriers? Absolutely. I love that you, you talked about the, um, I, and I know you've talked about the, the moral and economic imperative for us to actually uh, address these issues. And this actually ties both of them together. We know that lack of access to those, those marginalized communities means higher utilization of EDs as a place where dental care is provided, which is costing the system. It's inequitable and doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so as you can see that the, the, this disparate weight of the disease burden among the populations that we talked about, we talk about, for example, that, that, that Black and Hispanic respondents to one of our own researchers have never been to the dentist at more than three times the rate of the white responders. You can actually see this burden being disparate and, and also tracking along the same lines among physical and behavioral health. And they all have these social drivers. Uh, we know that as a portion of a proportion of an annual family income, one study found that those in poverty spend 10 times more on dental services than those in high income families. So uh, globally, four and a half percent, 4.8 percent of direct health expenditures are on oral health, which is similar to our expenditures here in the U.S. to the tune of $124 billion. But here's an interesting fact. According to CMS, compared to 3% of hospital expenditure and 9% for physician and clinician services, out-of-pocket expenses for oral health is at 40%. 40% of the cost of oral health is out-of-pocket. So then you tell me, for those needing to choose between food on the table and a dental plan, then a dental visit for pain, for example, which wouldn't would someone choose who's been socioeconomically disenfranchised? What are their choices? 
Well, the stats not surprisingly say oral health is the one that gets left out of that conversation. It was March of last year, Kaiser Family Foundation found that 35% of people have delayed dental services due to financial decisions. And they actually delayed only 24% of their doctor's visits. And so when you think about it, when you talk about access, it's not just that the providers clusters are have an over-concentration in affluent areas, but we're also really, and, and how that impacts it and how oral health and overall health are connected. We're really eventually talking about this unattainability, unreachability to achieve optimal health because having to choose between paying for gas to get to work or paying to go see the dentist. And of course, the vicious cycle where the cost of preventative care is deferred only to be accrued with interest. When the interest has to go to the, the individual has to go to the ED for emergency care, becomes apparent. And that's, that's if they can even make it. Um, NIDCR, uh, Oral Health Report in America, which, was, which is a, a seminal report that was just put out this past year, said lack of access to regular dental care can result in an ineffective and expensive overuse of hospital EDs. Well, that's not really a surprise. As you said, you cited our own research at CareQuest Institute that's been backed up by uh, HCOP, uh, Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project. And we know that ED visits for dental visits cost three times a regular routine visit to the dentist. In my own home state of Oregon, average non-traumatic ED visits for dental issues uh, average about 3.6 per 1,000 people, right? But only two hours southeast of Portland in Warm Springs Indian Reservation, that rate is four times. I mean, you tell me why that is. You know, part of it is all the issues that we talked about is not having that integration within the overall healthcare continuum where most of the dental care provided in ED is actually becomes palliative because we're not in the hospitals, because we're not integrated. So guess where that, that also feeds into? 90% of patients receiving, the, when they go to the ED, receive only pain medication or antibiotics, but then are referred out to dental providers for treatment. So then you have this negative feedback loop where the burden of oral health disease and unmet needs exacerbate and weigh down the entire system. We talk about cost, if you will, to the entire system. And this exacerbates it through additional costs incurred at ED utilization, substance use disorders, loss of productivity. So back to what you always bring up, Eric, the economic and moral imp imperative to do this work is, 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 has made a solid case in oral health out there. I completely agree, Kaz. You know, this recognition of, of both of these imperatives really driving a future of value-based care and, and, and ultimately just having a societal recognition of the importance of oral health and a person's uh, overall health and well-being. And, you know, as you were talking, I, I, I couldn't help but think about that scene in Castaway. I don't know if you've seen that movie with yes. Tom Hanks. And yeah, he, he does this heroic act of amateur dentistry on himself with nothing but an ice skate, almost like doing his own root canal. And that's almost then that's, that's practically the desperation that some people have that are dealing with these social barriers and don't have access to good dental care. You know, they're on an Island and then they have, you know, these, you know, horrendous outcomes and, and then these non-traumatic dental conditions that are driving the ED utilization. But, you know, this other thing that happened in our, in our world that I wanted to bring up that that's impacting dental care was the pandemic. And, you know, there was a report that came out in 2021 by CareQuest, and it revealed that 6 million people lost their dental coverage as a result of the pandemic. I just couldn't help but think just how tragic that was. I mean, the, the good thing, I think, in terms of the value movement, and we've talked about it on the podcast with other guests, but, you know, the pandemic did provide us with, you know, at least a uh, uh, recognition that, you know, we've got to focus on rooting out these health inequities and, and, you know, to your point earlier about the recognition of this moral imperative for value. But all that said, you know, I wanted to uh, just get an update from you on the dental care landscape with regard to post-COVID-19. I mean, have we seen a, a stabilization in dental health coverage? And then also, you know, what would be your take in terms of a silver lining, you know, to the pandemic? I mean, are there uh, care delivery in in innovations like teledentistry, for example, that might be more accessible and, and uh, improving access and health outcomes? 
that's a great point, Eric, and I appreciate you bringing that up. If there was there was ever anything that remotely resembled that of a really faint silver lining in in the catastrophe and and the mayhem that was pandemic, is the fact that it did two things. It really highlighted inequities, demonstrated where the gaps are. It uh, articulated and underlined the the necessity for us to accelerate the transformation that we've undertaken. But beyond it, on a tactical level, it really lifted up some tools that have always been available, that been that been around, but perhaps the use case was not made for them. You know, I I had to. Uh, I just remember how, how painfully difficult it was for me to have to shut down my own clinical practice. We actually did this in advance of uh, Governor Kate Brown back in Oregon uh, and let my folks and my staff go uh, temporarily. But much like uh, my counterparts in medicine and much like a lot of dentists out there, we pivoted to telehealth to be able to communicate with and triage our patients, um, especially during the earlier days when uh, the in-person dental visits were limited. And the value of that, a value of, and we knew it, and we knew why it was important, why we, EDs were packed. You know, folks, as you recall, were out in the hallways, and we, we didn't have enough ventilators for people. So uh, it, it felt almost like a patriotic duty to be able to keep folks out of the hospital, triage them. And, uh, you know, I part of me wishes that we could sort of bottle that, that energy that looking above and beyond um, all the obstacles to integrate and those workflow issues and to stick with that. Um, we also found that that the, in addition to increasing the access to care during a, this public health emergency, telehealth really increased access to care for individuals that were in underserved populations, those with disabilities, those who lack transportations, those in rural areas, and those without adequate access to dentists because they just aren't around dentists. We know that telehealth is more often used by individuals living in rural areas compared to living in those areas in, in suburban and urban areas for obvious reasons. But we also know that telehealth visits are actually less expensive on average compared to in-person visits. We keep coming back to this, to how why this is a good point of argument and a complement to the value-based care analysis. And that is, it said it, it's a perfect example of value-based care as it has the potential to uh, increase access to care at lower cost and also should be prioritized by the stakeholders and advocates. Uh, we know that research on dentistry actually prior to pandemic found that most patients were successfully triaged and came to the dental office following the virtual visit. And so that not only did they stay away from the EDs, but they utilize the chair time, as we say uh, in dentistry to not put out fires, but to actually see patients for care that was already pre-screened. Uh, and here's a statistic, nearly all dental providers surveyed at the height of the pandemic, and this is that, that, that if you could bottle the passion and the energy that I was referring to, 93% of dental providers surveyed at the height of the pandemic indicated that they anticipated long-term changes in practice of dentistry after the initial crisis had passed. So we all felt that this was going to be the new normal. But then we also have obstacles to this, just like any obstacle to, to any new change that's transformative. Uh, we need to be able to do a better job of articulating the value of telehealth to payers and to create equitable and meaningful reimbursement methodology to providers. We need to make sure they understand how they can integrate the workflow uh, for telehealth and to regulators and vendors. We need to make sure that they know why they should invest in unique IT demands of telehealth and dentistry and to scale the necessary infrastructure so that telehealth is actually implemented equitably. Well, Kaz, I think you make a great point on the importance of communicating to, to vendors and regulators uh, of the, the equitable delivery of oral health and really creating the, that awareness we've been talking about on, you know, how it drives overall community health outcomes. And, you know, with that said, you know, I know that the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health has been very active in advocacy efforts across the political spectrum for Medicare dental coverage. And so right now, if you're a traditional fee-for-service Medicare beneficiary, you're likely not going to have dental benefits included in your coverage. And strengthening Medicare by including dental coverage would represent a giant step forward in improving health equity, access, and outcomes 
for seniors and people with disabilities and not having this coverage is a, one of the big reasons why we see one in five adults that are age 65 and older that have untreated tooth decay and uh, in many that have lost all of their teeth altogether. And almost half of all Medicare beneficiaries don't even have one dental visit in a given year. So, you know, Kaz, how is CareQuest working to get this dental benefit inclusion enacted in the Medicare program? And how would you suggest that we prioritize dental care within the overall healthcare spending for seniors? I want to start us up with some, a little bit of good news, if you will, some of some uh, like glimmer of hope, if you will, that's out there on the horizon. We know as CMS released a final ruling on November 1st in so that Medicare Part A and B will not cover dental services for uh, beneficiaries under certain conditions deemed medically necessary. And they are going to uh, begin coverage for dental treatments to eliminate oral infections prior to organ transplants and some cardiac procedures in 23 and then and also expanded uh, to coverage uh, for head and neck cancer treatments in 2024. And this is really important work for the underserved populations who face higher rates of chronic health conditions and medical challenges firstly, but also because of their absence of dental coverage prior to this, they've had to delay these organ transplants and heart procedures, cardiac procedures. Because without that clearance, you're not going to be able to get this care that you needed to. Additionally, these new regulations that were released by CMS established an annual process so they can review public input and clinical evidence in other medical circumstances that may not allow currently for dental uh, services. And this is an important pathway that's going to allow us to really uh, expand this conversation. Uh, we know some uh, MA plans, Medicare Advantage plans, provide coverage to nearly half of those enrolled in Medicare, and they could offer robust dental coverage, some uh, dental coverage that are meaningful, but really they still have out-of-pocket dental costs. And then they also show and demonstrate low utilization rates uh, compared to those uh, traditional Medicare services. That's the win that I want to start us off with. So that's really right out of the gate is something to, to celebrate. Having said that, uh, the reason to include dental coverage in Medicare, in Medicare is really quite simple. Healthcare, is, oral health care is in fact healthcare. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as some of the stats that you know, half of Medicare beneficiaries don't have any dental coverage at all and around the same number haven't visited a dentist in a year. Uh, this lack of coverage means higher out-of-pocket costs, even including for MA beneficiaries. And research has shown that Medicare or MA enrollees pay for three quarters of their dental costs out of pocket. Uh, additionally, without adequate oral health care, um, health conditions can worsen, uh, which isn't just bad for individual, but again, the overall health system costs go up. Uh, preventive dental care saves money because healthy people really require less care and they require less costly care. We know prevention is going to cost us less than interventions down the road, including periodontal treatment has been shown to save $42 billion annually, and that's with a B, for patients with diabetes and heart disease. And increasing access to care by adding dental benefits to Medicare program is a critical way to address pervasive health inequities. Uh, through research and experience, we've learned that healthcare coverage, if it's expanded, it's going to, in fact, narrow racial and ethnic disparities. Well, Kaz, uh, you know, as I think about your work as a leader in oral health, you're making some really bold moves. You're trying to, to create this more equitable and accessible landscape, and you're also willing to have uh, very difficult conversations along the lines of uh, how to, to get to the root causes and eliminate some of these uh, uh, health inequities. And, you know, we've seen that these inequities in healthcare, they're inextricably linked to this embedded and subconscious undercurrent of institutional racism. And it's very uncomfortable to, to talk about, but you know, there was another thought leader in oral health equity, Dr. Caswell Ev Evans, and he was quoted as, as saying, uh, and I'll go ahead and read this, uh, silence about and lack of attention and consideration for anti-racism advocacy by oral health proponents supports racism and its acidic effects. And if dental public health advocates fail to speak out, 
and provide leadership regarding anti-racism, what other entity in oral health domain will? If not us, who? If not now, when? And that's such a powerful statement, and I really commend you and the work that CareQuest is doing to advocate for anti-racist practices and dental public health. And for our listeners out there, you can access a special issue of the Journal of Public Health Dentistry that was released last summer in partnership with the CareQuest Institute on this anti-racism issue. So, so Kaz, can you provide our listeners with some perspective on how we go about combating the structural racism that exists throughout our health care system, including oral health? You know, we know racism is a public health epidemic. That's just, that's just, that's a known. I think having, having boldness, being open to having those, I, I believe you, you call them those difficult conversations uh, is going to be the essential uh, first ingredient. We know that across the U.S., there are barriers to care that have blocked people of color from receiving adequate healthcare for years. We also know that lack of economic opportunity and access to insurance, lack of affordable care, representation in the medical field, implicit bias, stereotyping are only a few examples of the barriers that we have to work to break down. And those are the upstream drivers that we talked about. In order to combat structural racism that exists through our healthcare system, including oral health, we, we have to be deliberate. We have to have those honest and transparent conversations. We have to be able to evaluate systems for what they are. We have to be cognizant of how at times it requires dismantling and rebuilding. An anti-racist society also is not anti any one other group. And I think that's just a lot of, lot of times a place of fear and hesitation that we, that we come from. Dr. McGee actually talks, uh, Heather McGee talks about how it's not a zero-sum game out there, if you will. If we are anti-racist society, it doesn't make us against anyone else. This is about embetterment and improvement of the society. Some of the work that we've done beyond the, our, our work at, on, on, through the Journal of Public Health Dentistry, our publication, and how we shed some light on uh, those anti-racist solutions in dental public health, We've also put together virtual events with a lot of stakeholders on how we as an industry, as a sector, can take on and take actions to advance anti-racism in public health. And some of the work that's come out, uh, it really isn't one-off solutions. These are not, these are not uh, epiphanies. This is to uh, underline and highlight that something as seemingly basic and seemingly routine and seemingly standard as DEI education and training to that to add that sense of awareness and 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 having your eyes open and to collecting more and better data across race ethnicity language sexual orientation and gender gender identity and also partnering with colleagues who are focusing on health equity elevating their work and as it pertains to my own area of expertise within CareQuest Institute, investing with health equity uh, at the forefront and providing resources for community-based organizations and advocates out there who are doing the work. I think I mentioned earlier just this important historical moment that we're in. And, you know, there's there, there has to be this realization of opportunity where we can have these difficult conversations and, you know, we can leverage public health and, and even the playing field and really bend the arc of the country away from all these disparities and distrust and get back towards more of an equitable uh, system that rec- recognizes the moral imperative, the right to health care, and ultimately justice for people. Um, again, I, I I can't commend you enough for, for that leadership. And, and, you know, there's all of that work that needs to take place as a leader in value-based care and but in, in health equity, but there's also this financial aspect that we have to think about. I mean, th- this is really expensive to, to build infrastructure and capabilities. And, you know, as we think about the critical investments that are needed to advance health equity, you know, a common refrain that we often hear is that, you know, Medicaid represents too narrow of a market to focus on or, you know, honing in on communities of color is, you know, just too limited for impact. And there's been a a charge to lead that I understand CareQuest has taken on through your innovation partners uh, arm, which has teamed up with Matter Health 
to launch an initiative called Smile Health, which seeks to identify early stage startups that want to tackle this important intersection between oral health and equity. Can you discuss the business case for investing in health equity innovation and and how does CareQuest provide support in scaling innovation and venture capital for equity and oral health? That, that's uh, the, the, the double bottom line, right? The, the, the moral as well as the, the business case and economic case for investing in, in health equity. And really the question that we ask ourselves is how do we effectively invest in health equity in a sustainable and meaningful way? Well, really it all starts with appreciation for the fact that solutions for marginalized communities have got to be developed with them, not for them. With a foundation built on working with those communities that you seek to support, firms, companies, individuals out there can actually tap into the market that's expanding at a rapid pace, and it's really ripe for innovation. At CareQuest Institute here, we're combining investments in technology with investments in grassroots coalition building and community engagement. So it's really a definition of our investment is really broad. It's just not just in technology uh, and AI and and new solutions, but also in individuals who can actually grow those. Uh, We're changing who has a seat at the table and where the decisions are made. And at the same time on on our innovation side of the house, our work is really focused on developing and accelerating emerging products, technologies, and potentially disruptive business models that have the power to revolutionize oral health access and outcomes for underserved population. This really includes everything from innovative, low-cost diagnostics and treatments to telehealth and AI. CareQuest Innovation Partners, as you said, have launched Simple Startup in partnership with our colleagues at Matter Health. Uh, Simple stands for Simple, Minimally Invasive, Integrated, Low Barrier, Equitable Oral Health. I mean, that is about as good of an acronym as you're ever going to get. And so what we look at is a cohort of early stage startups that are selected to participate in Smile Health, which is really an accelerator for solutions and they make oral health more accessible, equitable, and integrated, which are our North Stars for the work that we do. Really the applicants with the most promising early stage solutions for these uh, simple and minimally invasive and integrated solutions were invited, they were interviewed, and after careful considerations, we had a select few, and really the cohort team embodies the overall program's goal for equity and integration. As an example, 80% of the cohort, they had female leadership, and all teams uh, were comprised of diverse stakeholders, and really 20% of the solutions, and I think this, Eric, you talk about this a lot, where the solutions don't have to be homegrown. We need to really broaden our perspective. 20% of some of these solutions that were provided came outside of dental industry altogether, and really every health startup, every small health startup will have direct access to great mentors and depth curriculum on scaling solution and accessing the data, clinical validation studies, to anticipate barriers to adoption and ready solution for scaling. But our North Star, our guiding light, where we center ourselves is at health equity. I mean, it's literally in the name, so. Well, I think that your comments on having that North Star for health equity, it, it could not be overemphasized. And you know, the institute that, that I lead with, the Institute for Advancing Health Value, we actually had an event recently that was called the North Star for Value. And, uh, and it recognized this, just this importance, uh, this historical moment that we're in to really address health equity. You know, value-based care is just uh, in a, a constant state of evolution. And, you know, we we now recently hit the 10-year anniversary for the CMS Innovation Center. You know, there's been some lessons learned in payment models. They're continuing to, to look at additional ideation and design and finding out what scales and what can make impacts in underserved communities. And the future, I think, is pretty bright. And, and you know, and I also think about that in terms of how value-based care and oral health can become a driving force for the future of healthcare. And, you know, there, there's a lot of progress, as I said, being made. And, you know, one of the things that I was reading about was this shift to a, a value-based care model that includes APMs and, and dentistry that involve a significant transformation in care delivery and financial management. And there was um, actually a, a survey that the CareQuest Institute released that said more than half of oral health providers, I think it was around 51%, 
that were surveyed never heard of alternative payment models in dentistry. And, you know, certainly if we're going to shift to value-based care, you know, we'll have to get dental practices that are looking at, you know, payment models and, you know, they're going to have to build the IT infrastructure and the reporting and the analytics and the methods to predict utilization and costs. And, you know, we're going to have to look at piloting and, uh, and, and testing and experimenting on uh, new models for dentistry. So I, I thought as we wrap up our conversation today, that might be a good way to kind of close out is to really think about the future of oral health. I mean, how is oral health being positioned in the broader value-based care movement. And, and also, you know, I, I would love for you to provide some next steps for some of our listeners out there that are really um, looking to get more engaged in the work that the CareQuest Institute for Oral Health is doing in this important area. Thank you so much. That's an that's a aspirational dream state. I love that you said the, the future is really bright. I'd like for, for us to take a step back and look to our past if we are going to arrive and achieve a, that, that bright future that you're referring to. And really the question I ask myself is like, how did we get here? Why hasn't oral health been part of the conversation in a meaningful sense? I'm extremely proud and, and humbled and privileged to be here. Having this conversation with you as, as hopefully as, as one of many of my colleagues who will be joining you to have this valuable conversation. But how did we get here? I mean, we have the historical fragmentation and isolation of our education and training. Dental medical training have been separated, but it didn't need to be. We have different practice modalities. Practice ownership among dentists and private still sits at 73% currently, which really translates to, and this is not a bad thing, I'm stating facts, lack of coordination, lack of incentive to benchmark and calibrate around quality measures, and really invest in minimally invasive and quality-centered versus episodic care. There's this lack of alignment between reimbursement rates for episodic care and the cost of services delivered in private practice versus a group setting. We have aggregation of support and ancillary services that are available to large medical practices and hospitals, and a lack of those very services that'll contribute to operational overhead of solo practices that are currently around 60, 65% for some of dental offices. We have misalignment of incentives that we talked about. We talk about some flawed reimbursement incentives that have per turned preventive care into loss leaders, uh, medically unnecessary face-to-face -face appointment and that lack of workflow that we talked about when it comes to telehealth. And they, they really end up clogging the chair time with less than valuable uh, pro provisions of care. One of the probably cardinal pieces of the puzzle that we need to solve for is this misnomer of dental insurance, where it's actually a cap benefit tied to employment and not always offered without large out-of-pocket premiums. And it signals once again that oral health is a luxury and an elective. And so that we're in health insurance, physical insurance, the benefits kick in after reaching an out-of-pocket max. In dental benefits or insurance, dental benefits actually cease after a fixed capped annual amount and then out of out of pocket costs begin. This incentivizes payers to meaningfully advocate for value-based care or even to begin defining quality. Their financial skin in the game, if you will, is limited as the cost of care, which is the denominator of the value equation, is shifted to the patient and there is little with a limited financial arrangement with them uh, so that we can have that conversation around what value-based care really is. And so when we see this financially capping in conjunction with costly care, you have to wonder where the levers would, we would have to engage to have this conversation. And, and there's obviously the hesitation to wanna to take on something new and change the way we do things. We have this in, in uh, we see integration as uh, for medical dental integration by, by some, by not all, as an encroachment on autonomy of dentistry and oral healthcare providers, which really isn't the case because it adds to our value and our scope of practice. How I see this being us being able to help is uh, something that, that, that I know a, a very close friend of yours, um, Mike Levitt comes back to and talks about, uh, is to find value alliances uh, and to find folks who share our vision, but not necessarily the same path. We don't all have to get onto that a northbound train all at the same time, if you will. Uh, we could do it at different pit stops, but the momentum is there. We've generated it through some of our programmatic work that we mentioned earlier, more in court, 
Our grant making efforts are out there to support uh, community-based organization and folks who really wanna address health inequities and disparities in care and outcome. Uh, we're engaging academic centers uh, so that we can have a meaningful dialogue about medical dental integration. And we really wanna have be an ally uh, and a convener uh, to like-minded folks who really wanna drive the conversation around value-based care. So that in the future, when I, you and I have, this, have a meeting together, we can say we were able to move the needle. Well, Kaz, I, I really do think uh, you're making that impact. And, you know, I, I just can't, you know, thank you enough for being with us this week on the podcast and, you know, just your incredible work and uh, creating more integration, accessibility, and ultimately a more equitable future for oral health and healthcare. I mean, you're truly a phenomenal leader in value-based care, and I hope we can have this conversation again uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Your stuff is so like, honest to God, I have to like pause and write stuff down. It is like, it is, it's almost like I'm in class and I love, love, love your stuff. Your, your guests are like all stars. And this would be like, I don't know, this would be like getting invited to talk to someone at the hall of fame. I'm not anywhere near where some of these, these superheroes of medicine are, but God, your stuff just rocks. Oh man, I appreciate that. Yeah, we uh, we just love geeking out on the stuff, you know, value transformation, and you know, it just uh, it's just so important. And I think just you know, getting through all the noise and rhetoric and and having these conversations, I like to think that I'm you know doing my part to to create an impact. The fact that you're doing the work like this, you are already making an impact because every episode of uh, that you put out, it is like the entire transcript. I can teach in one of my uh, as a teach. Uh, financial literacy to, to the residents at back at back in Oregon, that could be taught as a course by itself. So props to you. Really appreciate you and your team and grateful for this opportunity. Uh, oh, it's our pleasure all around. And yeah, we hope uh, we can continue to collaborate in the future. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.